0: actually using a non nom de plume you may be the first uh guest to use the real name um but <laughs> david moulton is that your real name <laughs> it is my real name
1: oh. it is my real name so yeah i was uh so the whole thing about being anonymous on twitter it never occurred to me that i was anonymous because like I'm not famous. Right. So I just I just come up with a fun name because it's it's Twitter. Right. Mm-hmm. And it didn't occur to me that I was anonymous to protect my identity or anything. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's, <laughs> and then but then as it you know, I, I got a little bit more of a following and then. um, Yeah, I, I published that piece in tablet and I was just like, well, I'll just use my real name yeah. or whatever it is. So I don't feel like I was ever an anon in that certain sense people mean like someone protecting their identity because I never really had much to lose to be honest in terms
0: <laughs> okay that's fair that's fair but I think you're Anon in spirit uh the, the spirit of the Anon lives strong I think still in you as well <laughs> okay uh, okay I should probably pause and say David Moulton also known as <laughs> at Tom Tom Doom, <laughs> number one at twitter.com please uh ladies and gentlemen give it up for the hit writer, Dave Moulton. <laughs> here comes the backlash. Thank you, sir, for being here.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me. Good to be uh, here.
0: Can I ask you, are you related to Tom Moulton, the uh, godfather of the disco 12-inch? He's a niche reference, perhaps for some, but he literally invented the disco super mix. He invented the extended version that... uh faggots props like me and you are very familiar with <laughs> all these different uh, remixers right they do these extended uh dance floor versions and tom Moulton, godfather of disco really started it i think you might be related actually i might uh, just back that not up. that i know of not that i know of not oh, I we'll get into the ancestry. i suspect there's a connection there is
1: a Moulton alley in san francisco have you seen it it's like yes
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, <laughs> Atlanta, right yes It's so funny because I actually, I will jog down through that area from time to time. And I usually think of Tom Moulton, the godfather of disco. But now I'll be thinking of David Moulton, (laughs) who I followed. Actually, I was just telling you before we uh, got started for a really long time. You were one of the first like voices and like presences. I remember like in my, yeah, in my Twitter memory, which is a different memory than real memory, it was like 2021. I've mm. uh, been kind of like a conspiracy person, maybe a kind of a right-leaning or kind of non-lib, I guess, coded person most of my life. It all got very real, like in a whole new way in, in 2021, when I think that the mandates really, I think that really, the COVID stuff was weird, but the mandates were a whole nother thing. And obviously in the vaccine, whole other thing but yeah you were a voice of like reason you're like a i don't know is firebrand the right word i feel like you were just like kind of like hot and you kind of came in there and you were swinging and you were speaking truths and you were uh making a lot of sense when nobody else was so it's really a thrill to talk to you today
1: right yeah Glad to. be i mean i think twitter was it was a really interesting thing for a lot of us sort of who had been on the left and everyone we knew all our friends and comrades, because I really, you know, referred to other left-wing people as comrades, unironically, at one point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And uh, they were all completely going behind the COVID state. In fact, they wanted it to be more extreme. And so it was this isolation. And then it was an isolation on top of an isolation, because not only were you physically separated from everyone in your life, you also Disagreed with everyone in your life, so it was like isolation squared. And Twitter became the way to really find people who felt the same. Um, yeah, and that was hard to do, but I, yeah, it was. It became very rewarding. Um, I mean, it's addictive, but it, it <laughs> also <laughs> formed a new kind of community. I think uh, I- during COVID.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like I would say a leading light, at least for me. I was telling you before, I think like Ann Bauer, I think you may be friends with her. She, I was just razzing her a little bit on twitter.com the other day. She might not like me that much, but I will say I've always respected and admired her a lot. Different accounts, you know, and then the, who were just everyday people, just like regular voices from people like myself who were not Dr. Peter McAuliffe or whatever, you know, right, 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 yeah. this kind of like establishment uh, dissidents, but speaking the same language. I think we were all kind of like to the same thing. And most importantly, from different perspectives, like we all came from different backgrounds. Grounds Like myself, I came from a lib background in the sense of my family is very lib. I'm gay. Like you can't really escape, uh, I guess, like lib culture in many ways, even though I, sure. I, I was always kind of at square peg, I guess, in a lot of ways. Uh, like I voted for Donald Trump. I, I was somebody okay. who I voted for Roseanne also. I questioned a lot of uh, establishment narratives, but even that, that conspiracy background, I watched a lot of those people go along with COVID too, who are mm-hmm. these not quite left, not quite right schizo people like myself just go, what is that like to see these people who your comrades, you fought side by side with, right, for all these things. How did that feel? Um, I mean,
1: it felt awful. It was because it was so much, uh, like people saying, you know, uh, stuff, stuff like, um, you know, education is a human right, and then they were foreclosing the schools, and definitely people who, I mean, my big area of interest prior to COVID was I was really interested in, um foreign policy or at the time I would have called it anti-imperialism, you know, the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. Um and like a special focus on uh, actually Yemen was an area of, of interest to me and just the way like these reports were coming in about how these shutdowns were devastating the third world, you know, and mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of people being plunged into extreme poverty and it was like well wait a second, did you did people not really care about that i i don't i don't understand like how the left could be so adamantly in favor of all these these society demolishing at the time it didn't make sense to me and there was a period uh for for oh, maybe close to a year where I, I kept trying to make as a leftist blah 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 you know <laughs> i have to disagree with this and thinking like, well, maybe the ship will write and I'll make these arguments that are so convincing that the rest of the left will have to see that I'm right, you know? <laughs> yeah. And sure. um, and then now feeling like that, well, that was,
0: maybe that was, that was naive.
1: Um, but yeah, but, but for a while I, I was really, really trying to ride that out.
0: Um, it Maybe naive. I don't think so. I think you were, uh, you were using the paradigm that you were familiar with, uh, thinking that was going to work. And. Unlike many people, though, you realized it was not going to, and you accepted a new paradigm. You figure something else out and you move forward. That's the biggest tension I see is a lot of people refusing to like want to accept that things have changed, uh, I think that's the root of a lot of stuff And you were saying, you know, you couldn't comprehend how they could be supporting these things that they're supporting. And I still can't comprehend that they don't acknowledge it. Now, they will tell you that there were no real school closures, that the lockdowns didn't happen, that these harms are like right wing uh, fever dreams. It's so surreal. And it really is, I I think. Very creepy, and it makes the times that we live in so much just more murky and harder to read in so many ways. I think uh, than the times that came before. Do you feel like we're in truly a new paradigm in this in this new age? Yeah,
1: I'm. I'm wondering what. Uh, yeah, what to call myself at this point? Because I mean, I don't necessarily feel. Am I right-wing now? I don't know. (laughs) It's all made up. (laughs) It's all made up, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, I still think Marx has a lot of insights and whatnot, um, but I think he... uh, I don't know. I think there's... I think COVID pushed us into these existential issues that uh, Marx doesn't necessarily know how to address, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I'm not... um, I'm not a religious believer per se, Hmm? but I think there's, there's issues that like a purely atheistic materialist philosophy can't really deal with. And I think COVID showed up a lot of those because it was just this assumption that you just have to save lives. Like that's the only good is saving lives, you know? And so we just have to prolong lives as long as possible. Like there's no, there's no good other than, uh, just it's like it's like the left's ideal turned out to be just like imprisoning everyone and putting them on um what's that called? Uh, universal basic income, right? Just yeah. cashing these big universal yeah. basic income checks and just like having them live as long as possible. Like that's that's the only good the left ultimately could have imagined. That's their only vision of the good life. And I think that's not-I mean, I'm not saying you know, I'm agnostic, so I'm not gonna shit on atheists in any way, but I think if you like refuse to face uh, deeper existential issues. That's kind of where you end up. So we sort of are having this existential breakdown as a society and the left just wasn't prepared to deal with it, I
0: think. Mm. That's really well said. I tend to follow kooky schizos on my show who are uh, highly mystical or spiritual or religious. So this is good and to- refreshing to hear this perspective, although you're not the first kind of maybe ex-Marxist isn't the right term, but just a person who's no longer uh, self-identified maybe as a Marxist, but is still using the framework. And I think that's an interesting space to watch. I've always said this too, just about critical theory in general, is that it's, it's useful for a lot of things. It's really interesting to look through different lenses at and different problems in different ways. But when you start to get, I think, a little too like dogmatic or like, ideological with it, it does have its limitations. That's where they come out. And so I think uh, I'm excited to see what people do with the, with this kind of refreshing, like a new approach to these things. I think there's actually a lot of- there. of fate that you happen to be here just after your hot new piece i keep saying that hot new <laughs> devastatingly, devastatingly amazing takedown of <laughs> <the> <laughs> your piece helped me understand i think in a sense the age crisis but also our present moment and i think that was really uh interesting and th- these are topics i'm somewhat familiar with i guess myself but I, it was it was great to see it in this uh form uh at a, a high profile magazine and to see people talking about this issue that um it's been kind of slippery. It's been out there, but it's not really been articulated. It felt really great to see you blaming the left for all of our problems, basically, right now. <laughs> like, it made me super happy. Your piece is called How Leftists Became Big Pharma's Shock Troops. It's just amazing. Do you want to just give us a quick, like, high level? Like, what was uh, the inspiration for the piece? And what's your, what's your elevator pitch?
1: <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, all right the inspiration for the piece. All right. So two things. Those are two questions well, to be fair. Okay. You got know, a lot so, so, ask, so, like, it was six questions sometimes. Well, okay. So, so like the personal background for the piece was being, you know, a faggot, right? We're both faggots sure. here. And, um, both have spent lots of our time, life in San Francisco. And I moved to San Francisco, yeah, yeah. like in my early twenties, um, 23. Um, and this was 2000. Well, do I have want to age myself? 2010. I'll just say it. Mm. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, you know, it was great. I mean, moving to San Francisco in your early twenties is a great thing for a gay boy to do, right? I mean, just sexual utopia, yes. live it up. It's
0: the uh, sexiest city for gay boys. Yes, totally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes. And and so uh, moving there, and so I came at the age, sort of, at the time, like AIDS definitely was not an acute crisis at that time, right? It was past that, but it was also before prep. So you were still, Mm -hmm. like, learning how to be, like, sexually liberated and still have some understanding Mm -hmm. of risks and whatnot. Um, You know, basically just don't bear back a bunch (laughs) at all, you know, with strangers. Uh, (laughs) And problem solved for the most part. And I was always, you know, attracted to somewhat older men, usually 10 to 20 years older, and a lot of older friends. And so a lot of my friends had lived through AIDS. And so it was like, I was in this sexual utopia, but it was sort of haunted by this specter, this recent history of death, you know? And coming to terms with that um, was, was, was sort of what was going on in my head. And uh, all right, so a couple things, just anecdotes that sort of maybe planted the seeds years ago before, I, I still accepted all the mainstream narrative, but like, I remember going to like a support group with other gay men just to like talk about HIV risk. And I remember meeting uh middle-aged men there. Like, yeah, So guys, I was like in my twenties, these guys were maybe in their forties or so or mm-hmm. older. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they lived through AIDS in the eighties. Um, And talking about, there were a few men there who were talking about like testing positive in the eighties or nineties and not getting sick.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then, so like, oh, so there's a latency period. I mean, that's the mainstream explanation. There's a latency period that mm-hmm. lasts. Um, that can last for years in some cases. I remember talking to a man who said he uh, he was in his 40s and he said he tested positive like way back in the, I don't remember exactly when, but 80s or 90s. And he said for his whole adult life, he was under this impression that he was going to be dead in a year. Like, because the, mm-hmm. the positive test, it was like a death sentence. That's mm-hmm. how it was understood. So it was this catastrophe, a mm-hmm. death sentence. Um, and he never actually got sick. And so but he was living his life, his whole adult life in this expectation of imminent death, mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't come in his case. So uh, so there was that. And then I had a close friend who was. Um, who was positive, uh, he was HIV positive, and uh, I, was just, I just remember once. We were at a bar together and it was like one of these uh, Soma bars, right? So one of these like raunchy leather bars uh, <laughs> and uh, they were playing porn on the screen. And they could uh, into like a hole in
0: the wall. type, right, of right, 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 right,
1: <laughs> right, right. And so, so there's porn on the screen and the guys in the porn were um, they were fucking with condoms, right? And uh, my friend goes. Well, I don't understand why they're wearing condoms, because if you look at their face, you can see that they're positive. And I was like, wait, what do you mean you can see that they're positive from their face? And he goes, well, the the um, medication wastes your face. So they're obviously taking antiretrovirals because yeah, yeah. their faces are like missing um, their cheeks are missing fat, basically. So that wasted look. And then I I hadn't re- like I'd noticed that in my friend that he had that. But, you know, I'm not going to make himself conscious. I was gonna right. Bring it up. But then it was like, oh, that's why my friend looks okay. like that. So that just I mean those yeah, so that that alerted to me, you know, the uh, medication. Like a lot of like yeah. a lot of diseases, a lot of diseases what we think of as a symptom of the disease is often the, totally a result, a result <laughs> of the medication.
0: Yeah. I start, I'm like freaked out. Are they going to start selling like anti-retroviral virals for like buckle fat removal? They'll just be like, <laughs> you're, I'm not even joking. Like I can see a world. Like as you were saying that you're, you're this friend, this man that you, you knew like lived with the specter of death. Like he thought he was going to die, you know, in a year. Like I'm thinking like, where have I heard that before? You know, like that is, it's really uh tragic. I'm um, sorry, but so go on. So you had these experiences, I guess, or shaped over time, I guess. You're right. Right. And so, like, but I mean, I,
1: I, and you know, I accepted, um, still accepted like the, the mainstream idea that HIV is hundred percent fatal. Like, okay, there's a latency period that can last decades, I guess in some cases, but it's still fatal, you know, and, and so on. Um, and then really with, with COVID um, living through COVID, just so much had to call into question. I mean, to see the way that scientific consensus was manufactured in real time I mean one thing I've just always been obsessed with masks just because I am such a believer in human physiognomy like the face is the soul and Mm -hmm. so on it just seemed like such an assault on our humanity to just be like no you can't see people's faces and also just the fact that it was manufactured so Latently in real yeah. time you know within like a few weeks <laughs> mm-hmm. and and um so then it was like well that is just ridiculous I mean is how much else of science is like this and then um from there I just started yeah just going down rabbit holes with AIDS and mm-hmm. uh yeah having to re-examine things realizing you know Fauci was a key uh, one of the key actors in AIDS, mm-hmm. um, having to question the left, um, because, yeah, I think I grew up, well, not grew up, but as a young man, as a young gay man, um, sort of putting ACT UP on a pedestal. Like I knew a lot of I knew a lot of veterans of ACT UP and they were just these radical people who, mm-hmm. you know, in the darkest, darkest days uh, were fighting for survival and whatnot. So it was so they were sort of like the elders i looked up to um so this was a very disrespectful piece i guess
0: <laughs> it is but it's time to rip that from under those uh those you know, act up faggots i shouldn't be rude but in a way though it's kind of funny so i've had it out for them for a little bit we, we should probably define who who is act up all right so act up aids coalition
1: to unleash power right is a group founded by larry kramer in 1987 um to sort of put pressure on um, well, the big thing was okay, so silence equals death, and that was sort of a reference to the Reagan administration. Reagan famously wouldn't talk about AIDS, right? And so, like, we need to break this, we need to talk about it nonstop. And the other big slogan was drugs into bodies. So that's a very interesting <laughs> slogan, right there. Drugs into bodies. So there was this idea that uh The FDA was stalling, uh, drugs were not being approved uh, fast enough and whatnot. Um, And that's the subject. My piece opens by quoting Larry Kramer's um, open letter to Anthony Fauci in 1988, where he just like rakes him over the coals and uh, for not yeah
0: indeed it was it was great and we'll get into it, it was uh, it was an incendiary piece uh, his piece yours becomes abstraction upon that kind of uh that rage because you could reveal the uh, the backstory which is that there's i mean it's fair to say like some k-fob or some sort of yeah I know, yeah yeah, yeah. Like sumo k- kabuki going on with this right 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 and um, okay
1: so maybe just an interesting thing is that when i saw that like being pissed off at fauci in 2020 2021 and I saw that Kramer piece and I was like, just like, fuck yeah, just mm-hmm. because he's so insulting towards Fauci. And it's like, oh, I hate Fauci too. Uh, and I remember sharing it on Twitter and being like, this is awesome. Fuck you, Fauci. But then you have to like step back from mm-hmm. the rhetoric, right? Like the left is always going to use the most extreme rhetoric, but you have to pay attention to the actual relations
0: that are being formed, right? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. No, and that's funny because, yeah, I mean, I was so ready to say, like, um, Larry Kramer was murdered by the deep state because he was uh, Tony Fauci's biggest critic. Because I will say a lot of Tony Fauci critics did die right before COVID, but or right around the beginnings of COVID. But Terry uh, Mullins, the uh, inventor of PCR, died very soon before the pandemic as well. Maybe it's weird to say Luke Montagnier is part of a conspiracy. He was 82, but he was making some remarks about the origins of SARS 2 just before he died. My point being, I was like, Larry Kramer was taken down by the deep state but actually your piece <laughs> I mean, it's like that there is yes like that, indeed some more complexities going on there between this kind of nexus between act up this, this organization who is basically agitated for no regulations drugs into bodies get it out there basically like the, the proto warp speed kind of uh, mentality like what can what could go wrong with that you know it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah yeah
1: yeah oh and just kramer's rhetoric um and maybe i should say like act up was i mean it was decentralized so there were different Groups who had different approaches, but I think Kramer can be—I mean, he was the founder—and um, can sort of be identified with with the the general trend.
0: Um, I would say they're kind of hot in a way. Like, I have to give them credit in a sense because they had like their cute little, like, the look. They're very butch dressed men, they had their little mustaches, their cropped hair. They had their, like, very, their propaganda. Like, I am an appreciator of propaganda. They do a very good job with it. The silence equals death, the pink triangle, you know, evoking right, the right, heart right. Of us. Very effective. Um, I, so, I'm a, you may have guessed, I'm a disco historian a little bit, just on the side. Yeah, I break okay. earlier, right? Um, so, there's this club called The Saint in New York. It's like this famous gay club from the a- in some histories, the early days of AIDS, it was called like the saints, saint syndrome or something like that. We have so many men from this club. Oh, um, okay. Um, this thing, so they're, they're like the, the hot shit gays. They're better than everybody else. It's like the impression you get when you start to learn about the different kinds of rivalries in this scene. And so I started to just resent them because I was like, as a self-loathing homosexual, as the, uh, the left will sometimes portray me as, you know, like I didn't feel like I fit in my whole life, basically. I projected a lot <laughs> to like act up and the saint and this whole like... um this type of gay i guess in a sense fairly or unfairly i will say though i actually think fascist gays today are they should appropriate act up style back from the left because the left does not really deserve it even though you kind of prove it i guess they they kind of do because act up are in fact shock troops right how how do they become the shock troops for uh, for the big pharma
1: well i mean i think uh well one thing so kramer's rhetoric uh if you go back there's that piece and then there's also a speech from him, like the founding of Act Up where mm. he, he, he talks about how, I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like we're all just, we're all going to be dead in a couple years mm. Um, mm. and don't just go on to the cattle cars, right? Play We are in the middle of a fucking plane and you behave like this. So it's specifically drawing, it's like the most catastrophic analogy you can imagine, right? Like if you just go along with this, you're getting on uh, the cattle cars to Auschwitz or whatever. Yeah, explicitly drawing comparisons to the Nazis. Um, and so there's, I mean, I think there's real problems with that, with with turning, because I mean, AIDS was a genuine health crisis, right? I mean, it was a genuine emergency, um, but even in an emergency, right? Maybe even a, you could even say, especially in emergency, it's better not to panic. Like there are bad downsides to panicking <laughs> in, in an even in a genuine emergency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think he was spreading that. And as I was uh, writing this piece, looking into it, I could see, you know, I could see how that was bad for society as a whole to believe that there was this this plague that was going to wipe everyone out but i actually i think it was actually bad for actual aids patients for people with hiv um because uh you know if if you think it's an emergency and your your state is desperate you're in this completely desperate state the solution often is just more drugs or more medicine, you know, and medicine uh, needs to be used uh, judiciously, right? Because too much medicine can kill you. Uh, And I think we saw that in the early days of COVID with um, ventilators, right? People getting vented to death. Mm -hmm. Um, Isn't that why New York City had such a high, part of the reason why New York City had such a high um, mortality rate in the first wave was just panic. In- um, and so I think something similar may have been happening with HIV and actual HIV patients with, um, like, uh, the first drug ACT, which I read about was, you know, it was kind of a nuclear option, uh, cause it works by mm-hmm. like keeping yourselves from replicating, like it's, it's, it's chemotherapy basically. Yeah.
0: Right? yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah.
1: It's, it's a really extreme thing. To do to someone, yeah. and so I mean, maybe there are cases of really desperate states where it helped, but uh, there were also people like my friend I mentioned who who thought they were dying, and you know how many people who were sure they were dying because they tested positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever know that for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know that that's yeah. ever been investigated. I think this has kind of been buried. Maybe after Fauci dies, there'll be like <laughs> an opening of the archive. Like I'm waiting for like the moment after the USSR collapse, you know, where it's like suddenly you can open the archive. Yeah, they'll at still say how-
0: seventy-five years though. They'll be like, will release papers It's always 75 year way. <laughs>
1: right, right, right. So uh yeah, so I just think, yeah, Kramer uh like uh, his his whole MO was just like maximum catastrophizing, right? Maximum panic porn, which really fit kind of well with pharma right because you're you're suggesting this massive issue and then obviously when you panic there's an intervention bias right the people you know you tend to intervene you have to do more why aren't you doing something right why aren't you doing something um and so that's you know pharma can really step in and benefit from that and i think they did I think they did.
0: Kramer's advancing this very ex- extreme kind of like genocidal view. Very much as you point out what we hear today from other activists is like sky is falling. Uh, we're all being killed, invoking the camps of nazi germany like creating this whole like firestorm of, of terror and then you've got fauci and the government really putting out experts and, and giving the same kind of impression there was this whole push i think in that era of like you're yeah. all die of aids and i was yeah i was born in the early 80s i was thinking about my earliest impression of of aids this is okay, yeah, yeah. i guess but i guess i'll just share this really quickly this is stupid i Remember this lunchbox I had that was a plastic lunchbox? I think it was popples. This was like this weird show. It was kind of a niche cartoon that was on. anyway. I had this lunchbox, it um, had these like pink splotches on it that started to like wear out at some point. I don't know why. It, and this stuck with me for a while, this indelible moment where I was on the school bus and like this kid was like, Hey, what's wrong with your lunchbox? Cause it was like covered in like pink splotches. And I was like, I don't know. And he like turns and he's just like, uh, he's like, everybody pool gave his lunchbox eggs, and i was like and it was like i was like whoa and i was like i I thought my lunchbox had aids so i I thought i had dates i remember having like a a little bit of a a moment because you didn't it wasn't really clear like it was everywhere and as a kid you know you're just absorbing all this media and it makes me think the stuff kids are picking up probably nowadays how much 10 times worse it is you know um but i did And and even growing up i really remember that being stuff like my parents like not really homophobic people, but definitely a strong association with like AIDS when they would talk about gay people. I don't really think I realized how much of my life I had like a plague mentality or I had a plague mentality my entire life until really COVID just started to really wake me up to these, these things, but really kind of, yeah, marked from birth. And I just, yeah, I just find it really, really tragic to think about. Sad little me on the, well, really my AIDS because... written little box.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I mean, I was born in the end of the 80s so I was I don't have any conscious memories of because I came of age I think it was a little bit past that point I think it sort of peaked by the late 80s and then yeah and so like the whole constant doom porn sort of faded because I don't really remember that from my childhood it was only as I became as I grew up and realized I was gay that I that I became interested in AIDS because it wasn't yeah 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 but yeah no that's really interesting so that yeah and then it was Right, so this idea that it was about to spread everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And like everyone was going to die. So it was about to spread and it's 100% fatal. Everyone's mm-hmm. just about to die. And I mean, that's a crazy message. And it's, it's crazy that like a gay rights organization, like ACT UP would be like, of course that's going to make people homophobic. <laughs> if you're telling people mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that homosexuals are the carriers of like the new bubonic plague yeah yeah. Is that? yeah homophobia is a rational response in that kind of you
0: talk about like their confrontational style does not help i've always disagreed to a degree i guess with the kind of leftist mentality of like spectacle uh over mm-hmm. know, actual direct action honestly i think like, a lot of times they think the spectacle is direct action but you know, i feel like act up was really notorious for i guess antics i'll call them uh, i call it the politics of theater kid bullshit but like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i mean i like, think yeah. it was
1: all it was all like very um I mean, I think all their tactics were sort of drawn from like 60s style, new left movements yeah. of like die-ins, um, uh blocking traffic and so on. And uh, like, like anti-war. I think if, if you go back to, you know, the 60s anti-war movement stuff, mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was pretty similar tactics, but it was used. I think as far as I can tell, it was the first time it was ever used in this way of demanding access to experimental drugs. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was the first. I mean, so the precursor to ACT UP maybe was like the feminist uh, health movement of the 70s. But that was, you know, and that was like, that was not though, there was really no crisis there. And I think so it was the element of crisis that made ACT UP different, Mm -hmm. right? The sense of we're all going to die within a year or so. Mm -hmm. um, If we don't do this, you know. And so we have to. Yeah
0: yeah so azt you mentioned is like i guess again chemotherapy an a, a old cancer drug that mm-hmm. keep coming back up because remdesivir is a repurposed cancer drug uh, i think lupron i think the puberty blockers they give children is also a uh, repurposed a cancer yeah, yeah yeah, so it's, yeah. It's, it's the kind of uh, conspiratorial research points towards this program called special cancer virus program which is a department of defense uh venture that uh, may have been the origin of aids so i don't know it makes sense when you look into guys kind of who's developing these drugs uh because there are kind of like kickbacks and such it's a complicated network i guess between the government and pharma and and these shock troops
1: yeah well yeah and so act was right is a failed cancer drug um and in 1987 it became the first ever aids drug <clears throat> and it was approved it was the fastest trial in fda history right it was the fastest trial in fda history the evidence was inconclusive but there was just so much uh it was overwhelming political pressure, I think, uh, was essentially essentially the reason. It was approved. Um and then from there, you know, it was it was not I mean, an interesting thing now is that at the time, if you look at the it was completely a mainstream view at the time that it that it was bad. Like, I mean Kramer himself says he, he doesn't like AZT, so it was very unpopular, like it was very it seems like the response was not like uh, this is great at all. Uh, people were, were immediately pretty dissatisfied with it. Um, how many people died from it? It's not clear. Um, how many people were saved? Who knows? Uh, but so it wasn't. It wasn't the the thing uh, people wanted.
0: farber she's a journalist who i came on to from uh, rfk's real tony fauci which is like a, a great source for a lot of uh, the uh, more information on some of the stuff that i think you you touched on in your piece um she wrote uh, it was like an uncensored history of aids she was actually writing about aids she, she was writing for spin magazine she had a regular mm-hmm. column um at the time and i think uh, she covered it, her book, she has actually a piece, I think it's one of these kind of uh, dissident conferences. And yeah, it, it seems that even in, yeah, amongst activists, you have like dissidents, but there's a lot of overlap, but maybe even not unlike we have Nowadays, with these kind of loosely defined boundaries, where yeah. um, it does seem like, yeah, AZT was not as well received. I, I don't you seen, Do you know the musical Rent at all? <laughs> Are you a Rent Head? I've seen you? it. It's been a long time. Yeah, but AZT yeah. is like, all over that. it feels like almost like. Oh, is it really? It okay. be, and it's, there's like a, literally like the um, character Mimi as a pager that goes off and it's like beep, beep, beep. And she's like, AZT break. And like they take their AZT. It's like, literally written into the show because um. famously a, a musical about. It. <laughs> It's not really about everyone having AIDS. That's neither here nor there, but it, I, it has that, that kind of, I guess, uh, reputation. And the other thing they kind of pushed what you touched on that I think is super interesting and critical is the ethics of like removing a, a placebo arm from a study. Like I, was, right. um, I wasn't was really even aware that that was something that, that had been pursued. It, it makes sense. And we do see that in the COVID crisis.
1: Right, yeah. So the idea that you can't have a placebo trial at all because it's unethical to deny people uh, life-saving care right but how do you know that's I mean that's the thing how do you know it's life-saving if it, if it hasn't it?
0: it's ridiculous well, it's that circular logic that is the basis of so much of this like uh, yeah. science and new law in fact as well you see the law in the gender again we come to the gender movement again or gender ideology movement but there's a lot of circular logic there because um, yeah I, mis- I was shocked to learn that the Pfizer trials when it was revealed that they had unblinded the placebo arm of a- an experimental drug that they were <laughs> mandating for everybody and they had done it under the pretext of exactly the same logic which was that it was unethical to like deprive people of this like amazing life-saving quote-unquote COVID-19 shot it was crazy because we we even saw that I think we saw that with with even with masks like
1: oh we we can't do RCTs because uh masks are so so life-saving you know and so so I mean it's it's a way to it's 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 sort of like this dual emotional scientific blackmail uh or science being advanced uh using using uh, emotional blackmail so yeah i don't know if that was if that was i think that was. i mean it was the fastest trial
0: in fda history up to that point so i think it was uh maybe the start of that Hmm? That i feel like he's agitated more and more so it's been incremental over time but i feel like that was a a pretty big substantial shift towards this kind of accelerated like fast track i don't know it's it's Wild. I guess the flip of that is not doing randomized trials on drugs that maybe would have benefited patients, but weren't weren't like, didn't have patents, basically. I know, I think it was in RFK's book, possibly, but we definitely saw that, you know, with things like hydroxychloroquine, they eventually did trials, they tried to sabotage them. But a lot of these early treatments that were not going to be lucrative for the uh, patent holders um, weren't pursued as treatments. I think a lot of that happened. That was a kind of the alternative, I guess. Maybe people would say quack doctors who say things like vitamin D and C could help cure AIDS or whatever, but there is a uh- some evidence there is evidence to me at least that they didn't pursue to see if that was even well i
1: always wonder about that is it you know because the best medicine is often just placebo i mean not in all cases but you know sometimes just especially i mean especially with covid because if covid was in the mass majority of cases a mild i mean maybe i'm being a COVID denialist but for most people who were you know under a certain age and a reasonable fit you might get sick for a few weeks but uh you would recover so i wonder how much of the alternative medicines were just the body recovering on
0: its own you know I believe the power of the mind. It is incredible. And I, I not I won't minimize HIV. I think people have described me as an AIDS denier. I, I don't I think HIV is real. I think AIDS is real. To be clear, I don't think that we're told the entire truth about those things. But I don't I'm not saying they're not real. And the same with COVID. I, I had COVID uh, very early in, in 2020. Like I know it is real. But I also think um there's a mind element to it right it is a psyop as much of it as it is like a biological agent it's maybe hard to parse out which one's the more devastating piece of it but i think the mental element uh i think is very strong in both maybe i think it's probably less strong in the aids uh crisis to be fair because i think it's a more devastating illness obviously but there is a psyop element to it as well both in receiving it and as well as like just the precautionary principles that you're supposed to take to kind of like right getting it well,
1: even like even on the most like mainstream, accepting Fauci's narrative on AIDS is true, like it's a virus, and the virus is what causes AIDS. One hundred percent, it's the only, it's the sole insufficient cause. There's still the issue of the latency period. So why does it develop differently in some people than other people? Mm-hmm. Right? Like Larry Kramer was HIV positive, and mm-hmm. according to this New Yorker profile I just read, never really got sick with AIDS. So he was he was saying all this, like we're all going to die. And supposedly he'd been positive since the late 70s and never really got sick. So he should have known from his own experience that he was maybe he believed it
0: himself. I don't know. I don't know uh I read that Larry Kramer was writing a play inspired by COVID-19 <laughs> right before he died I was I was surprised to learn that I uh, just saw that when I was doing some preparation for this interview today but um that's yeah. interesting I mean I think he was I mean I don't
1: know I, I I'm, I'm pretty I mean I was never a big fan but I think he was kind of a mediocre writer I mean his big novel was Faggots I don't know it, it doesn't sound that interesting I, I don't know I don't think he was like a
0: super talented gay writer like, great title Great title, faggots. A plus, 100. <laughs> like just cash it in, though, Larry. You didn't need to do all the rest of it. I guess. The- uh, right. So, so AIDS was well, yeah. So AIDS was, to be clear,
1: a real crisis for sure. sure. But I think it, the the response provided this this sort of institutional framework that could then be used again <clears> for <throat> to make up for crises that were. Uh, you know, somewhere between real and fake, um, in my opinion, like the trans thing is almost a hundred percent fake. Like there's, there's yeah. nothing there. It's it's, it's completely yeah. fake. Like COVID is is more there's you know ambiguity there. How real or fake of a crisis was COVID? I mean, there was a real virus circulating with uh, yeah, that was deadly yeah. to yeah. parts yeah. of the population. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yeah, that's that's where um, so in the piece I end on the trans thing just because it it shows. In my view, like how these forces, once they get off the ground, they can literally create something out of nothing. Essentially, they mm. can create they can create the disease that they then, you know, uh, sell the cure for. Right. Um, and as trans seems like a fairly uncontroversial. Version of that because I mean trans idea it just doesn't make any sense none of it makes any sense like like the yeah yeah well, i would say true. yeah
0: there's maybe some real social element to it or psychological sure. element like I think it makes more sense medicalize it but the weirdest part of it is the <laughs> it's an illness that's unmedical it, it's it makes no sense exactly you're right there is no coherence to it whatsoever right right
1: because it's <laughs> like yeah it's like what do trans people believe it doesn't make any sense like they think it's it's not a disease, it needs to be destigmatized, but it also requires
0: these experimental
1: drugs to mm-hmm. treat, even though it's not a disease. So is it you know, it doesn't,
0: yeah. It needs it requires everyday a medicalization of everyday life, another theme that you touched on. So it's definitely part of it, and also like censorship and propaganda. And I think the act up or shock trips for big pharma, but they by extent, become uh, upholders of this regime in the AIDS crisis, which was very real of censorship, propaganda. We mm-hmm. see it with COVID nineteen. We see it with the trans thing for sure, and where the science is completely bullshit. It's like there's there's nothing there. Uh, but they will bully you. They will use these activists as a as a weapon, as a country, yeah, yeah, Truth and yeah. Well, there's an author um,
1: who. Who wrote on AIDS? uh, Michael Fumento wrote "The Myth Mm -hmm. of Heterosexual AIDS," which is a really good book. Um, And it was censored uh, at the time. There's a great, um, there's a great Wall Street Journal article about it, uh, "The Unlearned Lessons of AIDS," about how like bookstores were shut, shut it down, like they wouldn't sell it Mm -hmm. uh, because it went against the catastrophe narrative. So this idea, so maybe that was like an early instance of people who are not catastrophic enough get censored like if you don't agree mm-hmm. that that this is the end times you gotta you're going to get you're gonna get censored mm-hmm. um and so that was yeah so that was yeah uh, a really good book and then and and then the the idea that oh censorship is necessary because otherwise everyone's gonna die if we don't mm-hmm. if the right thing mm-hmm. if they don't mask and backs or whatever um so I think yeah I think AIDS set a lot of this in place. And I think it was just, it was somewhat less pervasive just because media was different in the 80s, right? It wasn't, because mm-hmm. now media is almost part of your body. It's not even something you can turn off and on, right? It's, 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 uh-huh. it's, it's actually like a, an extension of mm-hmm. yourself. And so the, yeah, yeah of the bots, powers so of, bots, yeah <laughs> yeah, so, so the power, I mean, I think, because I think that coverage of AIDS was ridiculous in so many ways, like one out of five people are going to be dead uh in in the next few years and just on and on just ridiculous coverage but I don't think it quite managed to be as pervasive as COVID did I mean the world did not shut down in the same way because of AIDS in the way it did for COVID Um, and I think that's mostly just due to how media has changed in the in the decades Mm -hmm, since mm -hmm. since the AIDS crisis
0: I would say, like uh, maybe gay, some parts of the gay so underworld, the gay subculture shut down. Maybe for sure, so, sure, it, sure parts of that never maybe really came back. Just like as we'll see, I think from this this current crisis, elements that never unfortunately return coming through COVID. Like looking back now, AIDS. It's like oh my god, duh like how did everyone like they were being completely ridiculous? It was propagandistic. They're scaring everyone to death. They're being irresponsible with the science. They're lying. The, the whole story, even over the discovery of HIV, was public record. That there's this Dr. Gallo from from the United States. He he fucking stole the research from Dr. and Ye. Right. like eventually was in legal trouble for it it was eventually got out of it he's corrupt right. Right. and it was all open but it was not like it was not obvious and you're right media did work in this, in this different way for sure and there was less information but, um, you're helping to cast this kind of like new light on that era and to see things with a lot more clarity I guess it was. it was really instructive for me in that way
1: Yeah, so Gallo was, uh, there was that, the press conference in 1984 when Margaret Heckler, who was the, uh, what was her title? Secretary of Health and Human Services. Yeah yeah, Reg- yeah, yeah. Gave the announcement that the probable cause of AIDS had been found. It was HIV. And then, you know, made these really optimistic predictions about a vaccine within a couple of years and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and so that that sort of set everything Uh, in motion from there. And that's, I mean, that's where, should we start talking about Deuceburg? We should, yeah. Okay,
0: yeah. So this is is like, we'll transition to the, yeah, the secret history. I wanna say this, you mentioned the AIDS vaccine. This is neither here nor there really, but if you go back and look at the front page of newspapers on September 11th, 2001, there's so much news about an AIDS vaccine that was about to come out. And I just think it's weird. Oh. It's just a weird coincidence. It maybe means nothing. Maybe it means something because I, I tie this all together. I'm a total schizo. So I think all these, uh, these, uh, by way of anthrax, you can directly tie 9-11 to, uh, to AIDS and COVID. But anyway, since I just took off my uh, normal person hat, which wasn't, <laughs> was not very convincing, putting on my schizo hat here. Mr. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on Peter Duisburg? Who is this guy? Okay.
1: So yeah, let's talk about Peter. Du- okay. So who's Peter Duisburg? So Peter Duisburg is this uh, molecular biologist um, who was like one of the world's leading uh, experts on uh, retroviruses uh, was seen that way um, and was a member who was elected a member of what is that prestigious society that your uh, National Academy of Science mm-hmm. uh, and elected for life Um. So, yeah, considered an expert in his field. Uh, 1987, the same year um, AZT is approved, the same year ACT UP is founded, he writes this article uh, in a cancer journal saying retroviruses cannot cause disease. And then he specifically says this includes... HIV. <laughs> so he goes ahead and says HIV cannot cause AIDS. Um and so then it's like well wait a second then why are people sick? That doesn't make any sense, right? Because everyone's so sick then what are they how are they getting sick? So then he proposed his theory was that it was the result of drug use amol mm-hmm. um, uh, poppers yeah, Leiter, <laughs> uh, which yeah, is a VCR cleaner or I don't know what they call yeah, it yeah, now. Yeah, so yeah, it's called yeah. back in the day
0: <laughs> so that's I mean this is just this
1: crazy idea I mean I learned who Peter Disberg was in 2021 I mean I heard vaguely of AIDS mm-hmm. denialism mm-hmm. but it, seemed, it just seemed so way um, beyond the pale and then so like Celia Farber's written about him he has his own book on inventing the AIDS virus um, that I dug into. Uh, so yeah, I've read that. What do I think? Okay, so there are. I think he makes some interesting. There's a couple of points he makes that I do think are kind of interesting. So one is, um, what is what is AIDS? Like, what is it actually? So it's not actually a disease, right? It's a cluster of diseases. It's a syndrome, right? And so the fact that clinical presentation varies so much—I mean, that does seem makes you wonder. Like, is this a single disease? Mm-hmm. Example: So, 1981, the first ever um, story on AIDS is published in the New York Times. A rare form of cancer detected among gay men. Um, but it's not really about AIDS. It's about Kaposi's sarcoma, right? Which was this rare skin cancer that was thought to be a manifestation of AIDS. Um, and it's sort of, to me, like Kaposi's sarcoma symbolically defines AIDS because it's this disfigurement of like beautiful young men. Like that's just, that just taps into some deeply, mm-hmm. deep part of your soul to think about. For me, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So Kaposi's sarcoma is uh, the AIDS defining illness. But then a few years later, there's a, another article in the Times before AZT was approved. So before there was any specific treatment for AIDS, that Kaposi's sarcoma was declining hugely among gay men and among AIDS patients. So was that AIDS or wasn't it? I mean, so so th- there's this issue of different diseases, different clinical presentations. Um, so Disberg makes a lot of that. He makes a lot out of um, the latency period, which... It's real i mean uh i knew that from talking to older gay men men who'd been positive for many years um he makes a big deal out of um re- uh, azt specifically causing aids like the fact you take this disease that actually causes or you, sorry, you take a pill that actually causes the disease it's um Trying to fight, which sounds crazy, but looking into it, I, it doesn't actually seem all that far-fetched to me, because the way AZT works is it keeps your cells from replicating, right, and so that could, you know, it's, it's easy, I think it seems plausible that that could lead to immune Many such
0: cases, all, all, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: So, but, okay, so am I, but at the same time, like, I'm not in any position to say Duisburg was right, right like I, there, a lot of the arguments are very technical. I can't really judge. There are cases like um do you know who Christina M- Maggiore is um uh, I'm not sure I'm saying this right uh she was she was an age she tested positive for HIV in the nineties um and then listened to Duisburg, and then stopped and uh she's like, okay, I'm fine I'll, i I won't take any medication and she died. so I mean, she's sort of the cautionary tale of someone, you know? So how much are you willing to bet your life on Peter Duesberg? I don't know. I don't think I would if I tested positive.
0: (laughs) I think I would listen to Peter Duesberg. You know what I mean? I would literally had to say, I guess, because of the fact that he is, because of what I know now, you know, because this consensus is bullshit. Like the scientific consensus from something so new, especially. Right. uh, And I
1: mean, I think there's also something, I mean, like if the medication... I mean both things could be true. The medication could be really. I mean, people wouldn't if the medication was fine, I don't think people would have a problem taking it, right? I mean, it was having, you know, it was yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was so painful. Um that that's why people didn't want to take it. So what's interesting is 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 um so Duisberg wrote his piece in 87, and then he becomes this phenomenon. And today He's complete. He's he's, I think he's more or less like even mentioning his name is like, oh God, am I going to be <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. thrown out of polite society now? Um, but there was actually a period where he was gaining some, like, uh, there's a video link I posted with um, Ferber, Greg Gonzalez, oh my, uh, my homie, um, and uh, Joseph Sonnaben discussing the Duisburg hypothesis. And so it was something that uh, people felt the need to talk about, at least because mm-hmm. and so, uh or like in ninety six the new york uh, New York Review of Books ran this long review of Duisburg's book by the um editor of The Lancet. um, so like that's about as mainstream as you get, mm-hmm. right so there was there was a feeling that Duisburg w- was making some points that needed to be addressed, and I think part of that was. There was this sense that the research overwhelmingly was just obsessing about the virus, often at the expense of like treating the disease, like treating the virus and the disease as if they were one thing, you know. And so you just have to stop mm-hmm. the virus and that'll um, cure the disease. It's like, you know, a one bullet approach. You just you can shoot mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. one cosmic bullet. And I, I think there was it wasn't just Disberg, It was a lot of people seen that. And you could say, well, maybe Duesberg was this overcorrection from the virus is 100% fatal to the virus is 0% fatal, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that was a widespread view. It wasn't just this crazy fringe idea. Um, And so Mm -hmm. there's this uh, doctor I like, his name is Joseph Sonevan, who was, he was one of the first uh, AIDS, first clinicians to treat AIDS. And he had, it was called the cofactor hypothesis. So the idea was HIV can cause AIDS, um, but there are other factors that need to be looked into. Um, and so he was like, he was big on like telling gay men they needed to lead healthier lifestyles and whatnot like if you're going to these meth orgies
0: constantly uh that's not going to be good for your health like it's, it's not, not like you... yeah, yeah. <laughs> some people have a big heart and they can literally just not refuse any loads david no right, right
1: right right right, 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 right. <laughs> Every week. i mean i don't know you hear stories of like free aids new york or san francisco and it just sounds crazy right like people, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 these, these orgies uh That are, I mean, stuff like that. I mean, and that's another thing I think we're, um, that Duisburg made me think about really for the first time, whether he's right or not, was there's so many factors in these cases. Like another thing is like, oh, um, if you're an intravenous drug user, but then it's like, if you're an intravenous drug user, how long are you going to live regardless? Right? Like if you're a junkie, essentially, Uh Uh famously do not have super long lives. And in his book, at one point, he points to the study that showed that HIV positive there was a study I think of of uh junkies in um it was in London and how HIV positive ones actually lived slightly longer than negative ones I mean they both died at very young ages but that's uh you know so that's
0: yeah yeah Duisburg to me Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because you solidified almost more listening to you speak. Now, I think of him almost as, uh, I'll say sometimes like the counter-narrative TM. We have the official narratives. And then I think there are stage-managed, you know, counter-narratives that uh, kind of emerge where perhaps it was too obvious. Maybe it was too hard to keep a lid on this controversial stealing of HIV or the origins of it altogether. Um, Harry Mullis has the foreword. I think it's like the preface to uh, Duisburg's book. I recommend people reading his intro because it's really fascinating. He talks about trying to find out where someone tells him there's no paper that ever demonstrates that HIV caused AIDS. And he's like, that can't be. And it's, it's like an essay. And he's talking about confronting with Montagnier about this at a party or something. It's a pretty good read. He, I, I like that guy. I think he's uh, pretty cool. But uh, yeah, Duisburg feels the right person at the right time. I will note this. Dewsburg kind of rehabilitated his career around the early 2000s. He did some paper research on cancer and I think gained acceptance. He kind of reminds me, I'm saying, like a Dr. Robert Malone type almost, where it's like he's from the inside, but he's kind of on the outside, but perhaps exists maybe to distract more than he does to help or assist. That said, a lot of the stuff that he said is not necessarily untrue. Yeah, again, like like you, I can't say for sure one way or another, but this idea uh, of Thinking again about gay men's lifestyles was something that like I had initially rejected too. I was like, no, that's crazy. Like he just hates gay people. Uh and then kind of really thought about it more, especially in learning more about health from COVID and stuff, and thinking, like, oh yeah, maybe those unlimited no loads refused meth orgies are not going to be having no consequences. And, yeah. What was the other doctor you mentioned with the um with with the kind of like the two, the 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 multi cause theory? Oh, Sonovan? Joseph Sonovan? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That sounds like some uh, Judy Mikeovitz, who's the Looney Tube, but I, I like her. She's from the, the film pandemic but she's actually was a she's a legitimate scientist who worked for nih and she she calls it the second gunman theory but it's a similar thing where it's like hiv may be causing it but it's a set of co-factors perhaps there's other things her theory is essentially that just there's all these other things that were already in- ingesting from other horrible scientific mistakes things like vaccines the blood supply etc but essentially says that yeah that this is like what's going on that there. are the AIDS is like too broad of a term almost in the sense that there's multiple things happening being bandied under this kind of term AIDS and in her thesis, in order to cover up crimes, essentially like medical crimes and scientific crimes of the past. Her book's Plague of oh. Corruption, she's wild. She she's wait, did
1: she write? She co-wrote a book. Uh was it yeah. Ending plague? I actually yeah, was just looking at the book. Oh, trilogy. Okay.
0: You I mean, you think I'm out of control. You should meet this woman, G it She is like cannot tell a story straight. You have to study her for hours to start to get it. But once yeah, yeah. you do, it's oh my gosh, okay. She does make sense. And I uh I and uh, her what,
1: co-writer is uh what's his name? Like Frank. Uh, oh hacker.
0: Oh, wait, so so there's ending... actually no there's more than one. She has she did one with uh Garcetti, her her mentor. Ending plague.
1: Okay, that's the one I think I know. Or um a scholar's obligation and an age. Yeah, okay,
0: okay, okay. That hey, one well, I was really worth Yeah, yeah okay, okay, okay. I was, I was just looking but, at yeah. that. Yeah. So she's, okay. yeah, she's legit. She worked for a National Cancer Institute, and all that stuff seems to be very tied to the origins of. Of HIV, I don't know. Where I guess maybe we could wrap up on some really dark, weird stuff here. This last little bit, David, like, where do you think where do you think AIDS came from, or where do you think HIV came from? It's a simple, casual question. Oh, no. the origin, I yeah. I don't know. I don't know. One?
1: No, I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder where the idea of it. I, I guess I wonder like where the idea of it as. So actually, I was reading that book um, Ending Plague, because. My understanding of like the research on HIV is it grew out of Nixon's war on cancer and trying to find uh, a retrovirus and it sort of failed. And then that research was repurposed Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. HIV. I don't don't have an opinion on where the the physical virus came from, but just like the idea like where did the paradigm come from is is something that's really interesting to me that's like,
0: totally I- fair and i think that paradigm that you're describing is the entire apparatus uh that involves the stuff you write about like act up and the the pharmaceutical access and, and the rushing the drugs it's very much i think intertwined with these programs uh you mentioned um yes i think it's in 1969, I think Nixon signed some kind of treaty that's like, we will have a ban on biological weapons. And then one year later, they start the special cancer virus program, which is essentially under the name of researching cancer, a re- resuming the weapons that they were developing. They were looking to make viruses ca- that would cause cancers in specific groups of people. There's a paper okay. that includes gay men so wait, this is Harvard like the, the covid the covid okay lab it's like the same it was- fucking thing it's like the best i guess i would say the most credible theories to me and there's extensive research on this len horowitz he wrote a book called emerging viruses he's the real he, people that he's nuts his stuff checks out in my opinion there's a guy on twitter I'll, I'll post this in the show notes he does like little mini like lectures on this like very well researched the history is it's not for everybody let me just say that because it will start to open your eyes to like just what the government even is but well um... this
1: is an interesting thing because this is like okay so then there's there's so then there's different kinds of aids descent in the same way that there's different kinds mm-hmm. of because mm-hmm. if because if Duisburg is right it's not a biological weapon at all because Bingo. it's harmless.
0: <laughs> That's what I'm saying because it, it reifies the center just like Robert Malone. It's, it's almost exactly the same thing where I feel like exactly, right, okay. exactly. It kind well, of like yeah. direction.
1: Well, cause then there were, I mean, there were some people who were big on the lab leak hypothesis. Like what's that guy Richard Ebright who were obsessed with it being <laughs> a lab leak, but then we're also really uh, strongly in favor of the most like harsh lockdown measures, right? Because okay. it's this bioweapon, right? So, so yeah, it's interesting. These, these, uh, choose um, your adventure.
0: It could be a little crazy, but I will say this whole apparatus, I was looking into AZT because I was reading your piece and it's it's uh, it's Burroughs Welcome, right? I think it's the manufacturer, welcome. Yeah, yeah. which is their funds go into the Welcome Trust, which is like the kind of huge funder of the entire COVID-19 operation for the UK. It was all being directed from, from in partnership with Welcome Trust. It's weird. There's a lot of connections, I guess. Um, have you ever heard of this theory that it's related to a hepatitis vaccine that was given to gay men in San Francisco and New York in the late 70s? Because that's a very compelling theory.
1: Oh, that sounds familiar. I, I think I've heard of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's, touch, there's a New York Times, I think, article from the early 80s. I want to say they were like, hey, could it have been this? And there's an artist named Klaus Nomi. He's like this kind of weird art uh, pop figure from the early 80s. He's kind of a avant-garde. He's someone well-known, but he died of HIV AIDS in the early 80s. And another artist, um, a Man Parrish, this kind of hip hop artist, says that Klaus Noe and everybody he knew basically took this hepatitis vaccine and within a few years was dead of AIDS. And it's chilling. And I've heard these anecdotes from older, like older gay men, just like, oh, yeah, people actually really were really open about what we would call now crazy conspiracy theories. You know, did you find that surprising how uh, how prevalent, I guess, dissent was in the AIDS era?
1: Well, maybe in the sense like I think AIDS sort of this idea of using the slur like denialist (laughs) to settle a scientific thing I think that started as far as I can tell that that really started and and got off the grounds with AIDS and I think by like the late 90s that was pretty set and yeah no it it does seem like that yeah I guess that yeah that was surprising to see that there was this window where people were openly discussing different things in a way like the New York review of books uh, favorably reviewing Duisburg. I mean not, the review isn't completely favorable like he ultimately disagrees with him but it's still shocking that to see that um so things were not yeah I mean I think we're living through such censorious times right just just so much shutdown of anything I mean and even just like stupid things that like masks have to be censored, you know, or just, just things that like really make no sense. Maybe that's why the censorship is worse because it it makes no sense, you know? So, yeah, no, I think, I think things have gotten more repressed actually as bad as in some ways, like the crisis around AIDS was as bad as the propaganda was. I think it was
0: still a lot more open-minded than,
1: than things are today.
0: Yeah. I think you're right when you describe the media being different. So I guess we, it is more i think uh, there's more of a clamp down now it's more restrictive because there's just so much more wider net for them to have to cast they have like almost no choice but (laughs) to just be draconian whereas um you could not talk about it in the new york times maybe but there was groups you could go in the village and meet some people or whatever and you'd get a pamphlet or whatever and start to learn about things people had more time to in those days i feel like i don't know maybe things carry in some ways ideas carry too fast nowadays just don't take and there's something to having the time to like understand it i think it's
1: i mean i think we're more siloed now and progressive enclaves are just so uh conformist at this point in in a way that i don't i don't think they i think it's gotten a lot worse um in the past generation or
0: two uh yeah comrade dude i was gonna mention this comrade doom i love that you actually keep comrade i like that you salute the comrade i'm all for taking the things that work and leaving the rest behind i think that's the uh, the correct approach so keep take it back from those fucking leftists they really don't deserve comrade that's simple they don't deserve any of their solidarity their workers shit their health rights all everything they stand for is Fucking baloney. So please take and use it for this new labelist movement. We don't need these fucking names. Who cares? It's all Madison Avenue. Just do your thing. Um, David, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you so much for being here. Where can people find you? On twitter.com or ever elsewhere.
1: Uh I'm at comrade doom one is my uh Twitter handle. Uh my uh combat piece, uh how the left uh became big pharma shock troops on the legacy of AIDS. Uh yeah. And I also had a piece in tablet uh,
0: in March. That's right. uh, we the three. The Great Transitioning. Have... Wait, what was it called again? The Great it. Transitioning. Uh, transitioning. We will link to both, both pieces for sure. We've got amazing show notes around here. David, thank you again, Mr. Comrade Doom. Do you have a final closing message for, for the audience, for the people, for the world? <laughs> um, I guess just uh, beware of uh,
1: comparing everything to the Nazis, I think, uh, Beware of uh, genocidal rhetoric, because it tends to be self-fulfilling in some way.